of the Quad is not to launch a Soviet-era containment policy. It is to present a more united front of well-armed, highly capable, largely aligned democracies that can have a deterrent effect on Chinese adventurism. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Sili and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Zachary Wheeler and Julianne. In the last couple of years, China has become increasingly more assertive throughout Asia. They have stripped Hong Kong and its citizens of their autonomy, continued to violate international maritime law in the South China Sea, and clashed with India over Eastern Ladakh. To respond to these challenges, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States have signaled that they are ready and able to re-establish the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, otherwise known as the Quad 2.0. In order to explain what exactly is the Quad 2.0 and what the implications of these strategic partnerships might be, we're joined today on the podcast by Jeff Smith. Jeff Smith is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center, focusing on South Asia. He formerly served as the Director of Asian Security Programs at the American Foreign Policy Council. He has authored and contributed to multiple books on Asian security issues and regularly briefs officials in the executive and legislative branches on matters of Asian security. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Mr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. That's so good to be here. Thank you. So we'd like to start off with pretty much the most basic question of this podcast, which is, what is the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, also known as the Quad? Which nations are included in the Quad? And why is it a Quad as opposed to, you know, four countries as opposed to five, six, etc.? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so sort of at face value, the Quad is really little more than a consultation mechanism among four Indo-Pacific democracies that find themselves increasingly aligned on uh, geopolitical issues in the Indo-Pacific. It was a consultative mechanism that started in 2007 with a meeting among mid-ranking sort of assistant secretary level officials from Australia, India, Japan, and the United States that eventually produced a a quad naval exercise later that year that was also joined by Singapore. But this quadrilateral security dialogue fell apart in early 2008 when Australia signaled that it was no longer interested in pursuing the initiative. And so it sat dormant for 10 years until November 2017, when again, mid-ranking officials from all four countries again gathered in this quadrilateral format, uh, really just to discuss issues of common concern and ways to promote this sort of shared positive vision for the region. So as a matter, a a practical matter, it really is just essentially another talking shop among strategically aligned democracies in the Indo-Pacific much in the way that many of these countries have their own existing bilateral strategic dialogues, and in some cases, trilateral strategic dialogues. There's one that joins the US, Japan, and India. There's another with the US, Japan, and Australia. This is essentially adding another layer to this existing um, network of coordination mechanisms among these four countries. But uh, the last thing I'll say is, 
it is in some ways a way for the United States, Australia, and Japan, which are already bound by uh, formal treaty alliances and already have a very deep history of uh, military cooperation and strategic cooperation. It's a way for them to bring India more into the fold and better integrate it into this existing network of collaboration. We, we, we also want to spend some time talking about the history of the Quad. What was the impetus for the original iteration of the Quad in 2007? And why did Australia signal that it wasn't open to continuing the partnership leading to the collapse of Quad 1.0? Great question. So the original Quad back in 2007 was in some ways, I think, ahead of its time, maybe, maybe before its time in the sense that it was a response to rising concerns about China in a way, but it was it came at a time where China was still sort of firmly in this chapter of hide and bide, a more moderate foreign policy under uh, then President Hu Jintao. But the Quad had actually gotten together three years prior after the... Um, Christmas Day Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, immediately afterward, the United States, India, Japan, and Australia formed this early responder humanitarian relief core group. And they coordinated to provide relief after this devastating tsunami that killed over 100,000 people. Uh, they, they acted as the first responders until the United Nations could put together a more sort of comprehensive international effort. So they had this example of, of working together, these four countries in this sort of novel cooperation format. And, and it was really the Japanese that began proposing in the years to follow that this become a more formal initiative and there be a, a more permanent coordination mechanism among these four countries. And so it was proposed by the Japanese to the, to the U.S. side, to the Australian side. And, and India at the time, we should remember, was really just beginning to form a closer strategic partnership with the U.S., having signed this civil nuclear deal in 2005, this 10-year defense partnership with the U.S. in 2005, was really just beginning to move away from the non-alignment of the Cold War and sort of test... Uh, new forms of alignment with, with the U.S. and its partners. So it was sort of early in, in India's, in this new chapter in Indian foreign policy, it was early in the phase of, of growing um, U.S. concerns about China. And I think, you know, the part of the problem was that there was resistance, frankly, in all four capitals to this idea. There was... In all four capitals, there was this notion that the Quad might be provoking China, that this this grouping might be perceived in Beijing as some sort of some sort of containment coalition targeting China, and so all four capitals had some reservations about that. All four capitals had some degree of domestic opposition. It, it, the domestic opposition was quite strong in India as well. Uh, particularly among the uh, communist parties, but others on, on the left who felt that India was breaking with its sort of tradition of non-alignment. And it was in Australia, uh, after a change of government, after the uh, Kevin Rudd government was elected um, in, er 
in early 2008, the then Australian foreign minister was uh, at, a, at a press conference with his Chinese counterpart where he announced that Australia was no longer uh, interested in, in, in taking the initiative forward. Uh, Japan had also seen a change of government a few months earlier. Prime Minister Abe had been defeated. Abe was sort of the intellectual architect of the Quad. So you had domestic developments in, in Japan and Australia that sort of led to this reduction in enthusiasm for the Quad. And frankly, you know, in the U.S., there, there was admittedly a greater emphasis at that time on the India-Japan-U.S. trilateral dialogue. And so there wasn't a, a great deal of resistance in the U.S. Uh, to the sort of the quads collapse. But, you know, what I argue is probably the greatest flaw of that first iteration of the quad was its timing. You know, it came, as I said, really at the dawn of it, the quad collapsed just as China was about to begin uh, this new chapter, this more assertive, more nationalist character to its foreign policy, which most scholars think happened in 2008, the year of the global financial crisis of the Beijing Olympics. By the end of that year, China was, uh, you know, set on a, on a different course. And, and the collapse of the Quad had happened just a few months earlier. And so I argue the greatest flaw of that initiative was its timing. Now, when you fast forward 10 years later, all four democracies are much more concerned about China's behavior and China's trajectory. And all four democracies are much more committed to an initiative like the Quad. And all four countries are much more comfortable working with each other. You know, in that 10 years in between the first and, and second iterations of the Quad, you know, the four countries continued developing these bilateral and trilateral uh, strategic connections to the point where they're all um, much more invested in, in this quadrilateral format now. And as I said, much more comfortable operating with each other. No, Mr. Smith, almost a decade after the collapse of the Quad 1.0, the Quad 2.0 was born. I want to delve a little deeper about what sparked this new iteration, because you've, you've mentioned that now that during the last 10 years has, has been a, a growth of Chinese assertiveness, assertiveness throughout the world. And you also just mentioned that the four countries in the Quad are now seem ready, now seem united. But I want to understand a little bit more what sparked this new iteration and how it came to be like where did we see some of the similar concerns with the quad 1.0 and what were some of the largest obstacles to the reestablishment of the quad great questions so on one hand i think it's it's sort of obvious and i i as i stated at the outset there was these two complementary broad trends that affected all four countries and one was rising concerns about china And for each country, you know, those took somewhat different forms. For Australia, there has been um, great anxiety over Chinese interference in Australia's domestic politics. Uh, there's been great concern about Chinese activities in the South China Sea and restrictions on freedom of navigation and debt trap diplomacy with the, with the Belt and Road Initiative. 
for the Japanese, you know, there's been this sort of steady stream of encroachments into the territorial waters around the disputed Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. Uh, for the Indians, there's been a, a rising of tensions over the disputed China-India border, and there has been sort of this growing conflict of interests in the Indian Ocean and South Asia, where China has become um, really, it's substantially expanded its footprint in India's backyard, its immediate neighborhood over the past 10 years or so. And of course, with the U.S., uh, we've seen this hardening bipartisan consensus that China is indeed a, a strategic competitor, likely our top strategic competitor. And we've seen this hardening of the U.S. approach to things like the South China Sea, the trade war, uh, Chinese espionage efforts, intellectual property theft. And so in all four countries, there's been sort of a hardening of views on China and a general consensus that the democracies need to do more to push back against Chinese excesses. But really, I think when we want to look at uh, the reconstitution of the, of the Quad, what, what prompted this, what sparked this specifically in 2017, because really it, before that, um, if you go back to maybe the early 2010s, Japan, Australia, and the U.S. were already talking about reviving the quadrilateral format, but India was for many years resistant. Uh, India had felt it had sort of had the rug pulled out from under it when the first quad collapsed, and it was concerned about Australia's commitment to the quad. Uh, it worried that if we if we join this grouping again and provoke the Chinese in the process, are we going to be undermined because there's another change of government in Australia? They were particularly concerned about Australia, I think, which they viewed as somewhat compromised by Chinese political and economic influence, although that view has, has evolved now. But you had in, in the mid-2010s the situation where concerns about China were rising, uh, including in India, but there was still awareness about this quadrilateral format. They thought maybe it's best if we continue to build on our cooperation bilaterally. We're, we're enthusiastic about the trilateral with, with Japan, India, and the U.S., but but maybe the quad is, a, is just a bridge too far. And I think what changed in that calculation for India was a few things. Uh, First, the Modi administration came to office in 2014 and was less reserved, I think, about pursuing strategic cooperation with the other three. And I think critically really advanced the India-Australia relationship to new heights and removed some of those lingering concerns and doubts about Australia. But the maybe more influential factor was that the the China-India relationship uh, really took a hit beginning in the mid-2010s. And the two countries, they, they began to have a series of prolonged crises at the line of actual control at their disputed border. Uh, China really doubled down on its partnership with India's rival, Pakistan, uh, signing, uh, assuming control of the Gowadar port, 
in Pakistan, uh, signing a deal to export eight submarines uh, to Pakistan and its largest ever uh, defense export deal, continuing to shield Pakistani-based terrorists from uh, UN sanctions, uh, continuing to sort of block India's entry into the nuclear suppliers group, which is this uh, international uh, nuclear supply watchdog. And then, as I noted, you know, China's sort of expanding uh, footprint in the Indian Ocean. It had a somewhat negligible military presence there for for decades. And all of a sudden, in 2008, Chinese warships began anti-piracy patrols in the Indian Ocean in 2013 and 2014. Chinese nuclear and conventional submarines began routine patrols. And so you had this sharpening of of the China-India rivalry at a time where the other democracies were becoming more concerned by China's behavior uh, and where India was becoming more comfortable uh, pursuing alignment with them. So you had these two complementary trends. And then I think it really came to a head in 2017 because in this existing environment, you had essentially two more geopolitical rifts open between India and China. And the first was over the Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, while the other Quad partners sort of adopted this ambivalent approach to President Xi's uh, signature geoeconomic initiative, India very early on became a vocal critic of the Belt and Road Initiative and refused to attend this major international summit, the Belt and Road Summit in, in Beijing in 2017. And so you had this rift open between the two countries on the Belt and Road. And then in the summer of 2017, you had this unprecedented standoff uh, on the Doklam Plateau when China, uh, Indian military forces essentially intervened to prevent China from extending a road southward into territory administered by Bhutan, but claimed by China, near India's sensitive chicken's neck. And it prompted this 73-day standoff that for a number of reasons was was unprecedented, and for a number of reasons sort of pushed India-China relationship further down the, the path of rivalry. And frankly, as the Doklam crisis was unfolding in the summer of 2017, China opened its first military base in the Indian Ocean, in Djibouti. And so you had this confluence of sort of geopolitical events in 2017 that ultimately set the stage for the revival of the Quad. And after uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, and his government um, were won re-election, it was the Japanese government that proposed to the other sides that they revive this quadrilateral dialogue. And a few months later, in November 2017, uh, one month after the Doklam crisis was resolved, the, the Quad was reborn. So, Mr. Smith, in 2020, the Quad 2.0 remains an informal strategic partnership rather than a formal security alliance. How does this affect what the Quad can do in practice? And is this ultimately a strength or a weakness? Yeah, that's a great question. So that is, um, you know, the Quad is often described as uh, some form of Asian NATO or a precursor to an Asian NATO. And, you know, as you note, that really isn't an accurate description because there isn't 
a formal alliance structure. There isn't a administrative bureaucracy. There isn't even a designated purpose for this organization. So it, it, it differs very much from NATO. It differs very much from any form of collective security alliance. I do think it does have some comparisons to NATO in the sense that it is a group of democracies, in very capable democracies, frankly, uh, increasingly aligned in their concerns about a rising autocracy or an expansionist autocracy. But the lack of this formal alliance structure is both a strength and a weakness, I would say. Uh, it is a weakness because this a more formal structure would give it purpose and would commit each country to the defense of the others. Now, in some ways, that's redundant because the U.S. and Japan and the U.S. and Australia already have these treaty alliances. But I think for the Quad, in part because India has always been so resistant to treaty alliances, that was never really on the table. Uh, I think the best that the four countries could hope for was this more, this looser coalition, which at this point provides sort of a, a more flexible format for the four countries to tailor the, the, the scope and the agenda of the quad in whatever way they see fit, which also allows the group to change in form and function in response to rising or or lowering threat perceptions. And that's why I think the flexibility is key because the, the quad can be scaled up or down if necessary uh, in response to changes in Chinese behavior and changes in the threat perceptions of the four countries. And so what, yeah, well, I just did, whether or not it's good or bad, this is the only format that was available to the four countries because of India's resistance to treaty alliances. And there is some benefit in this, in, in the looser, more flexible coalition format that they've adopted. So talking a little more about the scope and the agenda of the Quad, what are or have been some major Quad initiatives that have been undertaken? Um, in other words, what are these nations actually doing through this informal partnership? Yeah, that's a great question. So the sort of nuts and bolts of the quad is, is essentially a just a consultation mechanism. Uh, it, it's an agreement since they first met in November 2017. They've agreed to meet twice a year in the quadrilateral format, generally on the sidelines of some other multilateral summits. It's become a consultation mechanism at the joint secretary, assistant secretary level. And last year they added a they upgraded the representation of the Quad to the foreign minister, uh, secretary of state cabinet level uh, last November. And so it now appears as if the format will be one meeting among joint secretaries earlier in the year, one meeting among foreign minister, secretary of state later in the year. So that's the nuts and bolts of the Quad. The question is what else are they now sort of adding to the, the foundation? And they have begun, unlike the first iteration, branching off. And so last year, the Quad countries had their first counterterrorism exercise held in India. 
And earlier this year, although it wasn't a formal quad initiative, uh, members of all, all four of the quad countries gathered for a video conference to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic. And they were joined by officials from New Zealand, from uh, Canada and, and Vietnam, I believe, or Singapore and Vietnam. And so they began branching out into, into new areas, new functional coalitions. Um, and there's been discussion potentially of reviving some form of quadrilateral military exercise, which would probably take the form of an invitation to Australia to rejoin the Malabar naval exercises, which began as a bilateral U.S.-India naval exercise in the 1990s which uh, eventually added Japan as a permanent member uh, in 2015. And there's been sort of rumors and, and discussion of inviting Australia to rejoin the Malabar exercise for many years. In fact, Australia has formally requested to, to join the exercises, uh, at least as an observer, for several years. Um, request that's been denied by India since 2015. There is some speculation this year after the events of the uh, China-India border crisis in the Galwan Valley in, in the summer, which led to the first uh, casualties from hostilities at the border in over 40 years, that maybe India is now um, getting becoming more amenable to inviting Australia to re rejoin the Malabar exercises and, and get the first quad exercise back. Uh, back in operation. Uh, but there's been no formal decision, as far as I know, made on that yet. The last component uh, to the Quad, U.S. officials have admitted that um, lower-ranking officials at the embassies in various countries around the world have been meeting in this quadrilateral format to discuss is issues of, of common concern. So across the Indo-Pacific, you have officials at the various embassies of the four countries gathering to conduct consultative dialogues on whatever issue might be troubling that, that country or that region. So it's, it's engendering this growing network of quadrilateral cooperation at multiple different levels, essentially bringing these four countries into greater alignment and reflecting the greater alignment that they're finding in their shared joint vision for the Indo-Pacific and in their shared concerns about Chinese behavior. Mr. Smith, I'd like to move us back to a point that you made earlier in the podcast, which is the question of whether or not the Quad is sort of meant to be this containment mechanism for China in the Indo-Pacific region. So recently, Mike Pompeo stated that the Quad would, quote, be a prove very important in the efforts ahead, ensuring that China retains only its proper place in the world. Um, but on the contrary, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has argued that the Quad is not necessarily an explicitly anti-China grouping. So my question is, Mr. Smith, is the Quad meant to be a containment mechanism for China? And if not, what is the kind of overarching goal of the Quad in the region? Yes, that's a great question. And... Uh, you know, if you ask 10 people that question, you probably get 10 different answers. But to me, the Quad does not represent a, a containment coalition. 
personally, I think that uh, a containment strategy of, of, of the type the U.S. deployed toward the Soviet Union in the 20th century is simply not viable with a country like China, not at, at a time when all four member for all four members of the quad, China is their biggest trading partner. That was a state of affairs that, that simply didn't exist with the Soviet Union and would make any kind of Soviet style containment strategy unviable. Uh, it simply wouldn't work. And so I've argued and in fact, in a piece that came out today in War on the Rocks, I argued the point of the Quad is not to launch a Soviet-era containment policy. It is to present a more united front of well-armed, highly capable, largely aligned democracies that can have a deterrent effect on Chinese adventurism and efforts to upset the, uh, upset the status quo. I think the more the Quad and like-minded partners speak with a united voice, and the more clearly they articulate their core interests in red lines, the costlier it becomes for China to test or cross them. I think the goal is to win without fighting. And the success of the Quad makes that more likely. And so I see it as an effort to present a more united front and to deter China from impinging on the interests of the Quad members and their partners and undermining the rules-based order. And so that to me is the real value of the quad. That, that's the real potential of the quad and that's what the goal of the quad should be. So along that line then, um, if the quad is a strengthening a united front of um, democracies, how has China reacted to this reestablishment of the quad? Very good question. Um, it has, you know, the Chinese government officials generally don't speak directly on the Quad. We can tell from the writing of, of Chinese scholars and from, you know, op-eds in China's nationalist Global Times that uh, the Chinese are not fond of the, what they, the so-called Quad, as they refer to it. Uh, they portray it as a anti-China containment coalition. They try to tell India, remind India of its non-aligned past and the fact that it will never be, um, never be sort of tricked by the United States and others into provoking a conflict with China that, that just serves American interests. And so they deploy different methods of propaganda to try to sort of undermine unity among the Quad. And particularly they target India uh, because they think that's a, a soft target and maybe the weak link in the quad. So it's clear that I think Chinese nationalists are, are somewhat uh, uncomfortable with the idea of the quad, but they tend to, uh, Chinese officials will, will tend to sort of downplay its significance and, and suggest that it's never really going to go anywhere because India will never really truly be a committed partner. Uh, but in terms of how China has officially reacted, sort of, I guess you could ask, has it changed Chinese policy? Has it had a deterrent effect on Chinese uh, adventurism? And I think to date, the answer would be no. Uh, China has been acting more assertive. Now, this is a secular trend that began before the Quad was revived and, 
may not make much of a difference what the Quad does. Um, but Chinese behavior has been growing more nationalist and assertive, and that's particularly true this year since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is ironically just providing a even greater impetus for the Quad to enhance its scope and activities. Uh, and so China's reaction, I would say, I would say has been mixed to date. Uh, and the effectiveness of the Quad, I think the, the judgment on that, it's still too early to render any judgment. A follow-up question kind of in the same strand, Mr. Smith, that I have is, there are a lot of other countries in the region of the Indo-Pacific that are also not part of the Quad. For example, the ASEAN countries or South Korea. Um, how are these countries feeling about, you know, being excluded? Like, are, are they begging to get in or are they upset that it's happening in the first place? Yeah, also a very good question. And also a, a case where um, the answer would depend on whom you ask. Uh, in general, I think there is a preference among countries in Southeast Asia to avoid having to choose sides between the United States and China. And so they are uncomfortable with uh, any sort of explicit initiative that is targeted against China or that implies that there is a new Cold War or that pushes them or forces them to choose a side. And so to the, to the degree the Quad is viewed as this hostile anti-China coalition, I think it does make some in, in places like Southeast Asia uncomfortable. But if you look at uh, polling data, uh, I think the region, both elites and the public in the region, view the Quad more positively than some of the headlines might suggest. So while they don't want to have to choose sides, they don't want a new conflict, a new Cold War, they also don't want the region to be dominated by China, and they like alternatives. They like balance. Uh, that's what they're see constantly seeking, is, is this form of balance in the region. And I think they recognize that the Quad is does provide some level of balance and some kind of insurance against uh, hyper-aggression from China. And so they, I think, you know, in general, they, they like the idea of the quad and they want the quad to be there if it's needed, but they don't want the quad to end up provoking a conflict with China. I think some in Southeast Asia also do worry that the quad undermines uh, what they call ASEAN centrality, which is that ASEAN really has um, taken a leading role in the regional security infrastructure in the summits that sort of make up this informal regional security order. And so there is some concern that the, the Quad sort of undermines this centrality of ASEAN, although it doesn't really overlap with or duplicate the, the various summits that ASEAN puts together uh, every year. Uh, and so it, it really is a mixed bag of perceptions about the quad there there are not a lot of capitals that are sort of banging down the door to join the quad because they don't want to be seen as in this anti-china camp but i do suspect as we saw with the covid19 pandemic call that you will find a lot of countries that are 
are interested in working with the quad um, on, on functional areas where their interests align. So that could be on humanitarian aid and disaster relief in the future. It could be anti-piracy. It could be maritime domain awareness. I And it could frankly be a response to Chinese provocations. So I think how countries view the Quad and their willingness to engage with the Quad will change uh, in response to Chinese activities. So if China continues pushing the boundaries in the South China Sea, provoking its, its neighbor's threat perceptions, you may find uh, a different view of the Quad in Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam or the Philippines. Um, but for now, I think the, 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 the primary lens through which many of these regional capitals view the Quad is it's a useful tool, um, but it's one that uh, I I'm, I'm, I'm remain somewhat cautious about. And their principal goal is to continue to benefit from engagement with China um, without completely undermining their security, sovereignty, and autonomy. And so they want some balancing options in the region that groups like the Quad provide. They want to have their cake and eat it too, in a way. And for now, I think the Quad at least provides some insurance against um, Chinese adventurism. Mr. Smith, to wrap us up, what are your recommendations to U.S. foreign policymakers to strengthen the Quad? Because we, of course, don't want to see the Quad suffer the same fate as Quad 1.0. So what are your recommendations to not only strengthen the Quad, but also to make it durable? That's yeah, a great, great question. And, uh, you know, it's, it's already, in a way, proven more durable than its predecessor, which didn't even last uh, one full year. Um, and I think it is more durable specifically because India is now a, a more engaged and enthusiastic partner, but because all four countries are more committed and all four countries are more concerned uh, about China and all four countries recognize um, the problems caused by the dissolution of the, of the first quad. And so I do think they, they already have a stronger foundation for the second quad moving forward. Um, in a recent paper for the Heritage Foundation, I provided some uh, recommendations for the quad uh, in terms of enhancing its agenda and guarding against backsliding. And some of those were expanding cooperation on space and maritime domain awareness, uh, inviting Australia to the Malabar exercises, which is something we discussed earlier coordinating to give the region uh, more transparent and sustainable infrastructure options. Uh, I think the Quad should be at the least issuing a joint statement after each meeting. You know, to date, we've had, we have these Quad consultations, and then afterward, each country sort of issues its own readout of the meeting, what was agreed, what, what took place, what was discussed. Um, and each of their versions is almost identical. And so I see no reason why the Quad shouldn't be issuing uh, coordinated joint statements after each meeting, sort of underscoring the unity among the four. I also think they should be pursuing a, a Quad heads of state meeting. You know, we've, we've already seen the uh, leaders of India, Japan, and the U.S. together on stage. Um, India already has a, a summit with, with Russia and China, the sort of RIC 
I think it would be an important uh, signal to get the heads of state of all four quad countries together for a, a meeting and a, and a photo opportunity on potentially on the sidelines of, of UN week. Um, obviously this year things are uh, a little upended by the COVID-19 pandemic, but at some future date, I think a quad leaders meeting would send an important signal to the, frankly, to the world, but also to the bureaucracies in each of the quad countries, including in India, that this is uh, an initiative that has the endorsement at the highest level uh, from the heads of state. So I think beyond that, I think they should add humanitarian aid and disaster relief to their agenda. That was actually the sort of original impetus for the for the quad for the regional core group in in 2005 after the indian ocean tsunami i think hadr makes a lot of sense for the quad there's not a lot of opposition to it uh it's a way to project soft power uh, i think they need to look at new forms of joint exercises and, and group sales even beyond the malabar naval exercise and i think the u.s should look at expanding uh joint training with quad militaries at U.S. facilities like the Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. So I think there's a number of steps that they could take in the months and years ahead to enhance the agenda of the Quad and, and guard against backsliding. Well, Mr. Smith, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, give us a subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.